Jill Weinberg is an assistant professor of sociology at Tufts University and an affiliated scholar at the American Bar Foundation. We discuss her research on how ordinary people define justice and injustice and how social context informs their definitions. In this podcast, we discuss a new method of gathering responses using post-it notes as a way to remove the researcher's impact in the field and to empower respondents as they respond to what many view as a highly emotional topic. Hi, Jill. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So we're here to talk about an innovative, interactive method that you've recently employed. Could you start by describing the method or, or even for that matter, telling us how we should refer to it? I don't know. I, I hope I can create a label for it, pun intended, because it's crowdsourcing meets visual sociology. And what I mean by that is I've been hanging posters with a question prompt in selected spaces. And so what I'll talk about or focus on is um, my sample of various schools in the United States. And the question was, tell me something about justice, a very big concept, but it's something that we are hearing quite a bit in the news, in pop culture, and individuals will come up to this poster and they will fill out their response on a post-it note or a sticky note and they will stick it on the poster. And after data collection, I will take each and every post-it note and I put into a qualitative analysis program where I code for the region in which the post-it note came from, the response itself, and If I had individual level characteristics, which I have in different field sites, I would also tag that as well. You're bringing together a few different methods to create this new approach. What was your inspiration for this particular type of combination? It came from two different sources. The first was teaching, actually. We, a very common catalyst for discussion that I've been using was having some concept post it on the board and I would give students post-it notes and they will go and respond accordingly. And as the instructor, I will pull them off and I will use responses or questions that you may have posed to answer the question and as a a springboard for a discussion and typically on topics that are very sensitive and some students don't uh, feel comfortable answering aloud. And having that anonymity was really, um, I think, important in in some topics that we had in 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 my classes, including sexual violence, uh, the recent events with the Donald Trump election, and so that was sort of one stream where I saw purchase to use it beyond the classroom capacity. In the everyday setting, I've been conducting interviews in public spaces where I've been asking individuals tell me something about justice, how do you define justice, and to give passerby something to do to kind of draw them in as they're waiting to be interviewed, I had this poster up. And it worked really well. People had really interesting things to say and to post. But what we found, myself and my research assistant, was our presence really shaped who was coming to participate. And specifically, we are younger women, in our 30s that mostly men were coming and very happy to share their stories and and almost speak to us in this sort of paternalistic way that 
we wanted to make sure that people can share their stories and their ideas about this topic, but somehow be mindful of our positionality as a researcher or our presence in the field. And so having the posters and putting them in these strategic locations without us present allowed us to achieve that. That's really fascinating how clear it was that it was the men who were interested in coming up. And I suppose it's depressing how it's not incredibly surprising. Yes, it was very, again, it's very paternalistic. They would say, oh, let me tell you about justice, sweetheart. And often they would talk to us and we said, put it, you know, put it, would you like to be interviewed? Would you like to, you know, either audio recorded or video recorded? And they would say, no, 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 no. And I said, well, why don't you write what you just told us, that great story or that great definition and put it on the poster. But they were more interested, again, in just talking and not participating, which is really great and useful as a researcher to sort of get a good background. But from an empirical standpoint, it is very unsystematic. And we did see a lot of purchase, again, in removing ourselves from the context and allowing individuals, again, the anonymity, respecting their time, their space, um, and to answer questions that were very, uh, it's very sensitive. Uh, We get a lot of responses about justice And we see in sort of a brief finding is uh, people of color tend to associate justice as something that is unattainable, something that is relative based on your social position in society. And they have an overall disillusionment in in point to cases of police brutality. Um, The election, of course, is is something that's now come to the fore. But um, these are very sensitive topics. And we... At least for me, I, I want to be very mindful of being respectful to subjects. And that's just something I've been really um, sensitive to as I, as I grow in my, in my career as a researcher. This might be jumping ahead a little bit, uh, but I'm curious, how did you know the racial background of the person filling out the anonymous post-it note? Well, that's one of the shortcomings of the method where we hang a poster and we sort of step away. So if we are in a public setting, so for example, uh, I hung a poster in downtown Boston. My research assistant and I would sit on a park bench um, kind of in the distance and we would wait for somebody to write a post-it note and then we would scurry over and then we would post, we would put demographic information on the back of the post-it note. In the context of putting it in a setting where we are not going to be present. So in our school sample, we are not there. We we had instructors who graciously volunteered to participate and they hung the poster for us and they collected the post-it notes for us and sent them back. Uh, We weren't there. So one shortcoming is we do lose demographic information, but we do see differences across school type, so community college versus private school versus public university, uh, regional differences, which we capture, and also, you know, time of year and uh, usually what kinds of issues are more or less salient maps onto what we kind of, we see in the news. I am curious before we keep moving forward. So you had this guiding topic where you're interested in justice. Did you have a series of questions related to it? Or was it really just you were going in and wanted to know how people uh, themselves conceptualize this idea? 
it's how people define justice. So part of it came from sort of a scholarly inspiration. And specifically as a socio-legal scholar, I hear or see in research justice being operationalized, but in a very different way, depending on your discipline, based on even just how you label it. So justice can be defined as a process, i.e., the procedural justice literature found in social psychology. It can be maybe in the criminological context as justice as an outcome. If we reduce crime, that is justice, or we convict X number of people, that would be a sign of the justice system working like it should. Um, and some people even talk about justice as this aspiration. Um, somehow, if we were to achieve equality, law would help facilitate that, or social norms or sort of social context would help that, justice would be achieved. But we've never really sat down and said, how do ordinary people define justice? Because again, we hear it all the time. We see it in news headlines. And in particular, we see more headlines in terms of injustice. Right. In, uh, there's a, this is a miscarriage of justice or justice was not served in this context. And this was my attempt at trying to understand how everyday people define justice. What type of social context do they use to inform that definition? And how does social context even form how the possibility of justice? So again, People of color, people in more impoverished communities tend to believe that justice cannot be achieved and imagine that the greater consequences of that. They have maybe a greater distrust in institutional authority, including the law and legal institutions. They may be less inclined to go to court or to adjudicate their problems, go to someone for help. And um, my research hopefully kind of gets us at these these finer points, but we do so by me telling, you know, asking the question, tell me something about justice. And then usually people will explain and I'll say, well, then how do you define it? When you were designing this project, did you have the topic in mind and then you came up with the method? Or did you have that positive experience teaching and then you came up with this methodological idea and you thought of a project that would work with it? It's the former of the two. So I was very interested in this concept of justice. Again, as a sociolegal scholar, I tend to be inspired by the theoretical question and then think about what method would help me capture the data or social phenomenon in the best way to answer that question. And for some reason, I'm not sure why, maybe I was reading the sociology of emotions literature when this all transpired, but I kept thinking, I need to have some visual approach. And that led to video interviews and um, even audio interviews. And that was, that was useful. But then I ran into the concern of people want to participate but they don't want to either show themselves on camera, they don't want to be interviewed, but there was something that provoked them to want to post something um, or talk to us. And so the post-it note was a really nice way at addressing the people who were eager, but not willing to be, I guess, you know, audio taped or videotaped. 
It seems like there's something within the act itself that's very compelling to people. And I'm thinking about how you already mentioned teaching, and there's a number of teaching activities that are really effective. And in an email, you mentioned uh, a project like this in a subway. And at an art opening recently, I saw a project that also used this idea of someone writing something that's difficult to share on a post-it note and, and posting it on a board. And so I guess this is just a long way to ask, did you ever get to talk to the people who participated in the project about the act itself? In the spaces in which we were there or close by, um, we saw people say thank you because they would, we, they would post and then myself or my research assistant would sort of rush over and read the post-it note. And the individual said, thank you for letting me tell my story or let me thank you for allowing me to participate. And so there is this um, very cathartic quality. Again, I feel that justice is imbued with so much emotion and social context. And, and we even see how this type of methodology lends itself, one, for public engagement, um, but also empowering the subject, something I have just become increasingly mindful of when I'm talking to individuals. Um, in this case, talking about justice may invoke discussions of police brutality and having somebody who's been a victim of that. That's really hard to talk about. And I can't imagine how I could do, I guess, justice, pun intended, if I'm sitting in a room doing a semi-structured interview. Um, or as someone who is younger and white, how could I go into an environment that I'm not a part of or a community I'm not a part of and truly capture the social phenomenon in the ethnographic context. And so this was a really um, great way of getting at that sort of a crowdsource strategy. And I also love the idea of giving some sort of visual appeal for, in, uh, for subjects. And so I started this project slightly before uh, the Donald Trump election. And so, as you referenced, the New York subway system had what they call the Trump therapy board. And so people were posting notes um, about their fears, their hopes, their questions about what the country will look like now that we've appointed him as president. And so certainly having that anonymity was something that really, I, I think, gave people a filter or not no filter to communicate their these deeper, darker feelings and emotions um, and not and doing it in a very respectful way. So as a, a researcher, collecting data, but not exploiting our subjects. You've already touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could elaborate on how you made that decision of where to post the different bulletin boards or how widespread this project would be, um, where people would have the opportunity to take part in it. So for the school sampling strategy, and, and I'll talk about because I have multiple field sites. So for the school, the school sample, I reached out to, it was like a teaching sociology, you know, Facebook thread. There's a lot of sociologists on there. And I said to them, I had this project. I really am interested in getting all different voices from different parts of the country. Uh, please contact me if you're interested. And it just so happened that I had individuals that reached out where geographic and school type variation naturally occurred. And so I have in that sample seven schools that 
are, again, in the U.S., and they range in terms of prestige. If you think about U.S. News, World and Report as a ranking um, metric, um, private versus public, community college versus a four-year, and then also being mindful of uh, the region. So is there a political sort of tendency or demographic that trends one way or the other, and then also racial composition of that jurisdiction. For my broader sample for the Justice Project, my research assistant and I did a sample on the United States. So again, identifying cities and neighboring rural towns as it is defined by the US Census. That varied in terms of region of the country, uh, demographic background in terms of racial composition, uh, political party sort of uh, leaning, and then economic status. And with that, we're hoping to really tease out, does the conception of justice vary based on, again, your social position, but also where you're located in, in the U.S.? So being in a place where there's a hotbed of police brutality and maybe a higher minority concentration will bode very different responses than being in New England, where it's a, a pretty racially homogeneous, white, very educated population. So then what do you do with all the post-it notes when you receive them back? How do you go about analyzing all the data? So I use InVivo, the qualitative analysis program. So I take pictures of every post-it note and I will code for uh, keywords. So equality is a very um, predominant or a, a very frequented word in the sample. The phrase, there is no justice, also um, comes. But I tend to do um, more of an open coding structure, particularly at the very early phases of data collection, because I didn't know what people were going to use as examples. Um, I think my only closed coding or predetermined coding was, are people talking about justice as a procedure, as an outcome, as an aspiration? Um, and I think some predetermined examples, so police brutality, war, politics, um, and money. But it's been largely open coding uh, thus far. And by virtue of taking the photographs and putting them into in vivo, I have now these codes so I can actually run the codes looking at the variation. Uh, if I have individual level characteristics, I'll have those or the region or the institution in the school context. And I also have the, the visual of lots and lots and lots of post-it notes. And so as a sort of a product for visual sociology, it's pretty compelling to have images, one of some of these poster boards filled with post-it notes, but then also seeing the handwriting of participants. And not to say that I'm a handwriting expert, but there's something really interesting to see the actual data, what it looks like. I was wondering about that. So if you have a post-it where someone writes a word in all capital letters, or they write the word down, then underline it three times, do you do something in the coding to capture that? Or is that not appear in the coding? And that's why you all have this visual element. We haven't seen a lot of punctuation, underlining, uh, underlining or all caps. Um, but having the, the, the picture itself allows us, of course, to go back in and, and maybe revisit some of these questions. I think that's a really great point is what does the penmanship, uh, what can that reveal? 
right, um, of maybe how emphatic, uh, emphatic somebody is about some particular point. But I, again, I also, as someone who's gotten really interested in visual sociology, there's that public engagement component of, of showing the public the data, allowing them to elicit their own responses for the what we're finding, but also showing even researchers what this looks like. What does a poster filled with post-it notes look like? And what do these post-it notes actually on the individual level look like, because I think um, it provides, it may not be an empirical story per se, but it does add the richness and the detail that sometimes gets lost when we overanalyze. Do you think that the size of the post-it note might be part of the story or potentially even an issue because it limits what people can write? When you're in public settings, a lot of people have somewhere to go. That's a, you know, and that's a really interesting sociological question. We always have somewhere to be. We're always late. We're on the move all the time. So being mindful that the small post-it note, yes, limits how much a person can write. But also, I don't. I suspect we're not going to get people writing long messages either because typically people are saying I'm coming from work I'm going to work I have a lunch break and that was one reason why we often found that asking individuals to do a video interview or audio interview people would say I don't really have a lot of time but they seem to have enough time to fill out a sticky note that makes complete sense and I could see how I could see now how the post-it note would make it so much more welcoming than seeing a, a piece of paper where I'd have to write an essay. Yes, and we, we we have a little Facebook page and Instagram. We're very we're very hip with this project. I in, by my old person standards, and uh, so we do one thing. Also, you were asking about the pictures of the post-it notes. We sometimes post them to like show interest with our followers, but also. Uh, we have all of the social media information so subjects can follow. So if I was interested in seeing this or if someone listening to the podcast were interested in seeing this, how would they go about doing so? Uh, so on the on Facebook, it is conceptualizing justice is is sort of our uh, brand for the project. And then it's the same Instagram handle, which is conceptualizing justice on Instagram. So not as much commentary, but you get to see the the visual data, so to speak. Okay, perfect. So when students are first learning about research methods, one of the central concepts is this idea of generalizability. How would this apply to this type of new method that you're employing? So part of it is, it's very interesting because it's crowdsourcing. So if you think about this instrument as a crowdsourcing method, we can imagine the shortcomings of who is willing to participate or not participate. What are the demographics of those who would participate, the racial background? Um, and so you can think about that as a, a potential downfall. But what can make this method generalizable is if you place these posters or use like the this post-it note method um, through your sampling strategy to help make it generalizable. So as I mentioned, I do have like a sample for schools, but I have a nationally random sample, but I'm looking at 
different cities, population size, racial demographics, educational attainment. This is all very systematic. And we tend to put posters in places in a very systematic way. So I'll put it near a courthouse. I will put it in a public setting near public transportation. Um, The more uniform you get, that allows you to have some generalizability of saying this is sort of people on the street. This is what everyday individuals are thinking. Another key concept is this idea of the researcher's positionality. And you've already demonstrated that you thought a great deal about this, and it plays a role in how you design the project. So I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more on the concept. Yes, I I think one of the motivations for having these posters hung without us present was because of our position. Uh, as I mentioned, we, my research assistant and I, we stood outside trying to get interviews in Boston, and we did get some interviews. People were very interested, and they're going to take the time if they really want to. But we found that who was coming up to us to ask us questions about the project and their eagerness to participate we felt was impacted by our presence. And we tried to diffuse the situation. My research assistant would come out, she's in graduate school currently, and so she would say, I'm a graduate student, I'm doing this for research as a you know part of my school credit. Um, I actually minimize the fact that I am a, a faculty member and thinking that maybe it being a student project or making it sound like a student project would would get more um, positive sort of participation. But in fact, I, I think it was our gender. I think it was being white uh, that gave us a very skewed population. And so what can I do to minimize that? My presence affecting who is even interested in participating. And I'm going to venture a guess and say that every single person has an, has a definition on what justice means to him or her. And so why is it that we weren't able to capture at, in the initial phases more racial diversity and age diversity? We like to conclude the podcast with a negative and then a positive. So first off, the negative. Were there any limitations that you learned about when you actually went out and employed this in the real world and tried it out for the first time? I think so. So as I mentioned, if if the researcher chooses to remove himself or herself from the situation, so you stand away from the poster, um, or even you're not even present when the poster is hung and these post-it notes are being affixed, you are losing some individual level data. And a lot of people will probably say, well, we're really interested in seeing if there's a relationship or correlation between age and the examples used to define justice or race and the disillusionment about the project of justice. Um, in, some of our con- in some of our spaces, we, we can't tell you that. And so it, it is a give and take in terms of how much can I or a researcher be there without effect impacting the scene. So there's that um, sort of limitation. All right. Now the more positive side of it. So reflecting back on your project, what are the main advantages or selling points of this particular methodology? Considering that for many people, 
um, myself included, and I'm, I'm sure for the audience, this is the first time we're hearing about this type of approach being used in sociology. Well, it's it's crowdsourcing, and if you make the great thing about crowdsourcing is you allow the instrument to be made available, or you have a call for participation, and anybody and everybody can go and participate. And in this context, when you're studying people in everyday life, what a better democratic way than to have this methodology be what's undergirding the project. The other thing that's great about this particular method is, and again, it's, it's from my biased perspective, is, is empowering subjects. And when we're talking about these really big sociological social concepts and there's going to be a lot of emotion behind this particular concept giving giving people the privacy and the respect to answer the this question prompt however they see fit without the presence of a researcher and potentially the presumed judgment of a researcher um can be very freeing and something I always tell my research method students and in, I guess in this hypothetical situation, sometimes we need to think about how we're treating our subjects. And there's a lot of things, there's a lot of incentives to get the research, get the data, get the articles to get tenure promotion and so forth. But where do we leave our subjects at the end of the day when analysis is done? And, and in this way, it spurs a public conversation. It's very cathartic. People can talk with one another about what they're posting. And if anything, if you don't participate, they still get to see the responses as they're walking by. And it may, and, you know, have them question how they think about justice. Thank you so much for joining us. The project's really fascinating. I think I'm going to go sign up for the Facebook page now so I can actually see what you've been talking about. Fantastic. But thank you Great. again. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give methods a chance. Mm-hmm.